Welcome to the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. Whether you're a student, a graduate, or an early career advisor, join us as we dive into the ins and outs of becoming a financial planner. I'm your host, Azaria Bell, bringing you tips from the experts on career strategy, sanity, and success. Today's episode is focused on exploring the wide range of options for further study in financial planning. I'll be joined by Dr. Michelle Cull, Associate Dean at Western Sydney University School of Business and Senior Lecturer in Accounting and Financial Planning. Dr. Michelle has had a rich history of working in both the industry and in academia, and I found this chat fascinating as I'm sure you'll hear from all of my questions. We discuss what the differences are between an honours degree, a master's degree and a PhD, as well as looking into why you may choose to pursue further study, how that works financially, what is required to get into those pathways, and what opportunities they bring. This interview with Dr. Michelle is a must-listen if you have ever considered furthering your studies. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Dr. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me today. So today we're going to be talking about what you can do after your bachelor's if you'd like to continue with your studies in financial planning. And I thought you'd be the perfect person to talk to because your journey into academics wasn't necessarily a linear one. So for anyone listening, could you give us a background of what you do and how you got to where you are now? Okay, so um, now I work at Western Sydney University. I'm the Associate Dean Engagement there and an academic senior lecturer in accounting and financial planning. And I did my PhD in financial planning on the role of trust, not trusts, but trust, as in interpersonal trust in financial planning. And um, so I had a a little bit of a a different pathway to a lot of academics. I started off my career as an accountant. So I had an accounting cadetship and I studied part-time, which I think is a great idea. I'd love to see more of that happening in financial planning as well, because I think when you're studying in the area that you're working, it helps each other. So yeah, what you're learning at university helps you in your job, what you're doing in your job helps you at university. I think that's the ideal way to study. And that was how I did my bachelor's degree, which was a degree in accounting. And I was working in a top 100 firm and I had a lot of different roles there. They they were fantastic. I had some great experience at a young age and I I have had some other roles in other top 100 ASX listed companies in accounting and finance and I did that for some time um, before I decided uh, like I I was faced with you know different sorts of decisions that had to be made in the workplace and I thought these are things that they don't actually teach you at university it's not something you can get out of a textbook and particularly when it comes to like ethical types of dilemmas or different types of purchasing decisions and you know things that involve people And I thought, what a good way to give back if I was able to maybe lecture at the university. And I had said to a couple of people at the time, you know, it was something that I wanted to do. And back then I'd opened, I'd just been talking about, this is something I wanted to open up the paper. And there was a role for a casual position for lecturing at night. And that was actually in management accounting. And so I applied and and I started doing that, did that for six years before I actually went on board full-time as an academic. And I really, I enjoyed all of that. And while I was doing that and teaching accounting, I was approached to teach financial planning. And we had a compulsory financial planning unit in our accounting degree at that time. And I kept saying, no, um, I wasn't comfortable with that because I didn't feel that that was where my background was. 
but um, I had some staff saying, oh, I think I think you'd be suited for this. Um, it would be really great if you could come on board. I said, all right, I'll just do it one subject just for this semester. But I also sat in with what we had like a head unit coordinator type position and I sat in on her lectures and I did a whole lot of research because I wanted to make sure that I, I knew more than what the students knew, of course, but that I was up to date because there was a lot of legislative changes as there always is with financial planning, but I wanted to make sure I was up to date with it all. And I always had an interest in that. I, I delivered like um, financial literacy sort of presentations in the past and been into high schools and all that. So I always had an interest in it, but um, just felt that it was a little bit outside my um, you know, my main area that I was trained in. So, of course, that led me down to then do further studies. And I think you were going to ask a little bit about that. Um, and that's something I actually had gone and applied for an honour to go into an honours program um, back then as well. And um, anyway, things, so fast track to now, um, things have changed quite a lot. And now I'm actually supervising PhD students and Master of Research students. So I think um, in terms of uh, helping other students now make decisions about what they might want to do in the future, other studies and research studies, I can sort of give a little bit of guidance in that area. So I think that I'll probably leave it there. No, definitely. That's an awesome <laughs> for, um, story. Yeah, for sure. And I'm so excited to have this chat personally because I did my bachelor's degree in commerce and I majored in financial planning and tax and I loved it. And there were so many areas that I wanted to explore such as um, financial literacy, behavioral finance, but I found that obviously in a degree, you're kind of more listening to lectures and, and going through the assessment. There really wasn't much space to explore and do further research. Um, so I'd love to know, because I haven't had this experience personally, what options are there outside of just doing your standard bachelor's degree? I've heard of, of course, an honours program, a master's and a PhD. Could you talk me through what those are and what the differences are? Yes. So um, you probably have heard about the Australian Qualifications Framework. So I sort of like position it there if you like. So the Australian Qualifications Framework has got 10 levels. And um, so 10 is a PhD. And if we sort of drop from there, then you've got like your master's, say, at a level nine, you've got like a graduate diploma at level eight, but honours is also classified level eight, and then level seven is your bachelor's. And um, so that's sort of how, how it all works. With an honours degree, to get into an honours program, you only need to have had a bachelor's degree. So, um, but you have to have completed that at a credit level or above. So depending on the university that you would apply to would depend on um, how they would look at your GPA, but as an absolute minimum, it would be a credit, somewhat a lot higher than that. And um, usually it helps if the units that are most recently completed are at a higher uh, standard than the earlier ones that can also help because it just sort of shows like the difficulty level of the unit. And some students can struggle, obviously, in their first year of studies as well. But that just gives a guideline to where people are at. So in an honours program, that is usually an extra one year of, of full-time study where you would complete a very small sort of like a mini research project, a mini thesis, but you do learn a lot about the fundamentals of research and it's a, it's a really good program if, if that's something that, um, that you, you know, someone would like to have a go at straight after their bachelor's degree. Yeah. So are there units in that, um, in that honours program where you learn how to do the research or is that kind of expected that you would know how to do that? Yes. Yeah, so um, you would be 
it, it does depend on each university, how they run it, but you do go through a little bit on um, how to structure a research project, the methodology behind it, those sorts of things. But it is at a more sort of basic level. You don't have very long. For an, it's quite intense, that honours program. Um, but the other thing is that that can be paid for through HEX. So it's just like a continuation of, of your coursework in that respect. Uh, when you go into your like your master's and your PhD, it's, can, it's a bit different how it's structured. Awesome. So with the honours program, could you theoretically finish your degree and then come back and do honours or is it something that it's a continuation of your bachelor's degree? It's usually a continuation, but you can go back. So that was something that I had gone to do. I've gone back to do that. Um, but then I ended up because I had I had um, some other work that I had done. I had done some research work in the workplace as well, and not knowing I was going to be an academic. <laughs> but um, what ended up happening was I was accepted into honours. Um, at, I actually, that was a different institution to where I even did my original bachelor's degree. But when I went and spoke to some of the lecturers there, that's when they said to me, oh, hang on a minute, we think you can actually go straight into a master's research. So I ended up doing that. And I'm really glad that you're asking these questions now because I like I had worked all those years, like I was in quite senior positions in the workplace and I didn't really understand how all of this worked myself. And I remember at the time, like when I decided to go full-time into academia, I had just had um, my first two children and they're less than 12 months apart, so I was quite, I was quite busy with them as well. But also, as you can understand, there was a lot more pressure on, on the budget and um, yeah, it was something that I was thinking about, which you do when you're, you're studying. And so when I was told, oh, you could go into a master's research, all I was thinking was, oh, how much is this going to cost me? I don't know if I can afford to do this. So I think having something like this where you're asking these sorts of questions for other people who might be making this decision down the track, it will really help them to understand how it works because it is a little bit uh, complex when you're not in that area. Yeah. So it can be hard to understand. Yeah, so let's say, for example, you've done your honours program, you really enjoyed it, um, and you'd like to continue doing more research. A couple of questions. Would that lead quite seamlessly into then doing a master's? Is there any transition between the two? And my second question is, can you do a master's without having done honours before? How do the two work together? Okay, so when you're talking about a master's, are you talking about a coursework master's or are you talking about a research master's? No, I didn't know that there were two different, different things. Okay. okay, this is exciting. Right. So how about I start with what, all right, and if you can get into an honours program, that it provides excellent training and it is widely recognised. Everyone knows when you graduate with honours, the sorts of level of, of research training that you've had. And, of course, you graduate with honours at different levels as well so that can represent... Um, you know, the standard of research that you have done. So the higher the level um, that you've graduated with honours, the more able you're able to go into other roles. So you can actually go from an honours degree straight into a PhD oh, wow. if you've graduated at that high level, mm -hmm. but not always. It depends on the university. It depends on the competition for it, but it, there is that possibility. So that whole one year of intense research can really, if you do it at the right time, that, that can let it be good to leverage into later studies. Yeah. So if you wanted to just do a master's degree, you don't need an honours degree. You can go from a bachelor's degree into a master's program if it's a coursework program. So a coursework program is just that 
like a master of financial planning, let's say, okay? So for myself, when I didn't end up doing the honours degree, I went into a Master of Finance Research, so in brackets it was research afterwards, which demonstrates it was a research master's. That is very different. And for me, that was half of the course was coursework and the other half was a thesis. And so that it very structured very differently. And um, a lot of the time you would need to have honours to get into that, but because of some of my other experience, I was able to to go straight into that. Um, sometimes they call it a research honours as well, if you hear that term. Sometimes that's what it, that's called. Uh, to get into a PhD, what they're looking at is that you have had some research training. So that's why whether you've got an honours degree or you've got the master's honours or master's of research, um, that can get you then into a PhD, but you still need to keep those grades high. It's still something that's also very important and it's often very competitive. So uh, as you can imagine, um, even with uh, applying for jobs and things like that, it's always, they always want the best candidate. So it's important to really try to, to do your best um, with that. Now, even though I've now talked about a Master of Finance research that I was studying, um, what you can also do is what's just called a Master of Research, which is a general sort of research master's degree. So that provides you with specific units that are like um, you might do a unit in qualitative methodology, a unit in quantitative methodology. You might look at um, writing for different types of audiences, so writing an, um, for an academic audience versus for, um, writing something for the public, for example. So you learn all different styles of writing in that. And um, a lot, you know, you do some literature reviews, you put together basically your research proposal and you'll practice doing presentations as well. So it provides a, a really good uh, baseline of, you know, research study so that when you then go into your PhD, you understand how all of that works. But you, you would have to do a thesis in that as well. So it's basically the same half coursework, half thesis. And then what some students when they graduate with that, they will then expand on their thesis. So um, because you've only got two years for a research master's and half of that is coursework, once again, it's a very, you've got one year like an honours degree, a very intense year to do your research. So you can't always um, go to, you might have these questions that you want answered, but you don't have long enough to do that in a research master's. So you will do part of that and then you extend it when you do your PhD. So it could be a pilot even. Yeah, I see. Because yeah. I've had friends who have done PhDs and I was going to ask you roughly on the timeframes, but it seems like it varies so much. So for anyone who doesn't have a background on what a PhD actually is, how does it differ from doing a master's or an honours? With a PhD, it's all thesis. So some, depending on the university, they will want you to do some other sort of study to set you up for the PhD so that you understand what's required. But um, it's very self-paced, so it's up to you. As you, rather than the instructor or the tutor or the lecturer giving you due dates for things, it's all up to you, and it's it's driven by the student rather than by the staff member. So you have to be incredibly disciplined, and you do need to understand what's involved, or it can be quite difficult. So, um, I like I've supervised a range of different types of students coming from different types of degrees and things like that. But I can definitely say those who have done that strong research training can get stuck into their PhD much sooner. And I mean, it's always, um, there's always difficulties. It's part of the journey. 
but I think it also takes the pressure off the supervisors because if you don't have that research training, then the supervisors really have to provide that to you. So it just takes longer before you can actually start collecting your data. And, uh, you know, that it is a, a long process and you've got to make sure that your uh, proposal is structured right from the beginning. If you try to do it too quickly without the right research training, you might find that it's um, it's not going to give you the results that you want at the end. You might have to go back and redo something that you weren't intending to do. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so PhD is much longer too. It's a three three to four years full time. Okay, so it's a much bigger thesis, much more involved. The main difference as an academic when we're looking at the contribution that's made, a research masters or an honours that might give um, a practical contribution. So it might make a contribution to the financial planning profession, let's say, but there's no theor- necessarily no theoretical contribution, whereas a PhD has that theoretical contribution and that's what makes it so much more complex. I see. So when you're doing a PhD, at the end of that, you are now classed as a doctor, which is a pretty cool title. And I know you've got that too. So that's awesome. And then is it also that your research gets published in journals and can be used by people in the future? Do you get that at all with master's or honours programs? Yeah, so it depends on the student, how, how hard the student wants to work, if that's something that's of interest to them. The supervisors would usually encourage that because they've put so much work into it. it you know, it would be sometimes it seems a waste to have a student do all of that work for it not to actually be used. And usually the student would want it to be used in some way. So, um, I mean, I have um, some Master of Research students now and we talk about publications from their research as well. So that's where you've got that theoretical contribution as well as the practical contribution. And once sometimes you find once something's published in a journal, then you can take that and then adapt that to to um, address it for a different audience as well. And so for people like myself who have done a bachelor's degree or are doing a bachelor's degree in financial planning, you'll do a little bit of tax, a little bit of super, a little bit of investing, but I'm imagining with these research projects, they're much more specific. So could you give us an idea of the different areas that you could choose to focus on in your research and um, what kind of interesting topics could you potentially look into? Oh, I can't start. It's so broad and that's what makes it really difficult is narrowing it down to something very specific. So um, you can start broad and then start looking. The way that the research process works is then you would do a bit of a literature review to see, okay, has it been done? Because you might think it's a new, you know, something that hasn't been done before, a new question to be answered. But then once you start doing a literature review, you might find someone that has already covered it. Um, it might it might have been done maybe in a slightly different context. So um, that's really important to look at that and then find where the gaps are. And that's where those gaps are. That is where you would want to target your research. But it's I always advise my students to stick to what they're passionate about because if you're if you're doing a, a research project, particularly a PhD, it's for a very long time. And I mean, I get bored very quickly mm-hmm. myself. <laughs> so got to choose something if you're passionate about it you're not you're going to be self-disciplined you're going to be motivated and you will be able to to get it done because it is a long time that you'll be studying it Mm. studying the topic for so when you're talking about tax or super it can be in any one of those areas and any really specific 
areas of those. And I mean, in financial planning, I think you can't go wrong because it's still so new as mm. like it's still been, it's not really recognised as a discipline on its own. But I can say this is why I did my PhD in financial planning. I could have gone and done PhD. I actually looked at doing some environmental accounting. Uh, I had some research questions in that space and I was looking at going down that route. Uh, but I just kept coming back to financial planning because I'd been teaching it. I could see all these gaps and I'm like, why Why hasn't anything been written on? This is really important and no mm. one's even written on it. I thought that's what I'm going to do because I feel like I can add much more value if I do something in that area and mm. that's why I chose that. And I've got, I've got a list. of I keep writing down ideas nonstop. Yeah. Uh, so I think I'll have plenty to keep me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You've got a lifetime yeah, so to work with research. If, if someone's interested in going to do something like this, it's maybe find an academic that you think um, works in the same sort of area that you're interested in and just have a chat with them. Mm-hmm. Because when you apply for a research uh, degree, to be accepted, you might have great grades, you might have a research background, but you will not be accepted if there's no supervisor for you. Mm-hmm. So you have to find the supervisor that will support you and they can help you sort of um, draft a bit of a proposal that you will submit to be it won't be your final proposal but at least they can say to you hey yes um, you're onto something that's that's really good here and they can help you craft you in a way that it's going to make it successful or they can say to you well actually someone's already done that maybe look at something else and then save you the hassle yeah of, definitely. You know, just trying to get something put together that that might work so I would say definitely look for a supervisor and you also need a supervisor that you could feel that you can work with and so it's nice to be able to talk to them and just see if you can get along and you work well together. Yeah, definitely. And let's say, for example, I have an interest in financial literacy. And now I know from listening to this podcast, thanks to yourself, that I can't just do a research program on financial literacy broadly. And let's say instead I choose a topic on how do young women aged 18 to 25 learn about personal finance through social media? And let's say that that's the topic I want to look at. Do I then have to identify if there's actually a need for that research? Does someone need, does it need to be something that's in demand? Um, because I imagine there are a lot of people that want to interest, that want to research something that no one else really cares about. Yeah, definitely. So you do, you need to, you need to put forward an argument. You need to be able to argue that this is an important and you will have to present your proposal even if you get accepted say as a PhD um, if you get accepted into a PhD program you're not actually technically a PhD candidate until you have passed your confirmation of candidature so you have a whole lot of work the first sort of six months of your PhD putting together a final sort of proposal and a presentation that you have to deliver and you have to ask answer questions about so one of those questions will be also what why should you this is always what it comes down to <laughs> why should you be doing this research because it costs it costs money mm. to do this you know universities are paying staff to supervise you know time to supervise students like this so it's something that has to be worthwhile so yes you, you need to be able to go and um find someone who has said that this research is needed, someone with authority. So often part of your literature review, you might find um, some articles that might have future research and they might say that that's exactly an area for future research. So that's great for you because you can say, okay, this person with authority has said that there should be some more research in this area. You might find that there's a government um, proposal to do something in the area that you're looking at so if it's something that the government thinks is important well obviously that's something that 
um, might help to give you a bit of a push and maybe you could apply for funding to do that as well. Ah, I see. That's research that needs to be done. Yeah. And, and of course, we see a lot of decisions being made, particularly in financial planning, where it would be really nice to have more evidence before those decisions are made. So that's where the research is really important. Yeah, because I was going to ask that with um, with my bachelor's degree, I remember reading through a lot of journal art, journal articles and really the most I ever used them for was to find references for my essays. So let's say you're doing either an honours, master's or a PhD program. Of course, it depends on the type of research, but who's using your research? Is it other academics? Is it businesses? Is it government? What does that look like? So that's something that you, you would look at when you're doing the research. You actually would need to answer that question. Who, wh- why is this question important? Who's going to use the research? And so normally we would look at all of the different stakeholders and it does depend on the topic as well. Uh, but you would want you, most, uh, if you're looking at financial planning, for example, you would expect that you would make a contribution to the profession in some way, a practical contribution. You might make a contribution to policy. That's a very important one as well. Uh, it might be a contribution to society more general, like if you're talking about women um, using uh, social media for their personal finance knowledge. So there might be something in that in terms of the the welfare of young women and if they're making informed decisions and that sort of thing. And then you've also got, as I, I said before, you've got the theoretic, theoretical contribution. So when you look at the literature, you will look at like the models, what have they used to put this together, how have they how have they analysed their data? You need something to guide you and you might actually use a model that's been used before and then you might extend it because maybe it was missing something and that's you've got that missing part so you may extend that model. And say, for example, there might be some models. You, you, we, we expect students to go to the grandfathers, if we put it that way. So, um, some you know, the, the very first person who came up with that model what was their reasoning behind that? And I, over time, you find that that model might, may be added to. And um, when you just mentioned about social media, for example, so there may be other models from other disciplines that you might bring in where social media has been used for other platforms and, you know, for other um, education. It could be something completely different. Uh, different to financial planning but the theory behind it is the same so say even looking at trust uh, you can look at how a client trusts their financial planner but when you look at pull trust apart uh, a little bit more and you start to look at the theory you've got different types of trust and you've got people like interpersonal trust you've got systems trust you know like people trusting institutions for example so it's much bigger than what you first think it is when you start pulling it all apart and, um, and even like technology, like now we're looking since COVID, all, all the ways that financial planners are using technology. So how, how do clients see that? Uh, do they trust using that technology? Would they prefer face-to-face meetings? All, all these other things come into it. And there's been a lot written in other disciplines about that. So you can look at the medical, uh, you know, medicine, for example, uh, and then uh, with talking about social media there could be a lot I would think in the arts and humanities about how people make decisions and might be informed by what what they see in social media so um, that's why the literature is so important yeah absolutely and sometimes 
new way of looking at it as well that you might not have thought about before. Yeah, it can really help you expand what you're looking at personally. There are scholarships available for people who do uh, look at doing a PhD full-time. So there are sometimes some universities will have some funding available where they might actually offer. So well, there's two parts to scholarships. So you can have a PhD scholarship that just means that you it's a Commonwealth-supported sort of place that you can apply for and you don't pay any fees. Okay. So that's one type of a scholarship, but you're not actually getting paid. But this, the other scholarship that is probably... So you'd, you'd still need to source income elsewhere if that was the type of scholarship that you received. Exactly, that's right. But there are some scholarships that also pay you an annual um, amount for doing that PhD if there is funding available. So sometimes the government will provide funding for um, certain types of research and universities, academics can actually get together and put together like a research centre and part of their application to the government for funding will say we're going to fund, you know, two PhD students. And so you might earn, you know, thirty or $30,000 per year or more. So um, just recently... Um, we had one that was paying, I think it was $45,000 a year. So that's very generous. Uh, but that, it also means that the student can just focus on doing a really good job with that research and it meets the timeframes that are needed. So sometimes universities will contribute and they might co-fund um, a payment with an industry provider, like you might have a financial planning firm that actually wants some research done. So they can actually say to the university, oh, look, we would really like some research done in this space. And rather than them going and paying a consultant, they'll say, we want to help fund a PhD student. And then the university might meet them halfway and together then they can provide funding for a student for a few years to, to do their studies. So that's the ideal way for everybody because, you, you know, the students are then able to focus on the research. People want the research um, you want it to be done in a certain time frame. Students need an income. So, yeah, it all, it all works really nicely um, when that's the case. And, of course, there's also other sorts of funding that can be provided on top of that um, for the research itself if it's costing money to collect data or you need travel as part of that and, you know, just other sorts of access to software and things like that. So that can all be provided throughout the, the study Awesome. And so I'm not sure if that helps. Yeah, no, that, that definitely does help. And I also remember when I was at university, um, especially my first year, a lot of the courses, the teachers that were doing the classes were PhD students. And I also had friends that were doing work as a research assistant. So what do those roles look like and, and how do they tie into, I guess, moving into the area of research? Yes. So um, a lot of PhD students are also tutors, but of course that it do, it's not just automatic. You still need to be able to teach yeah. <laughs> the units that the you know that would be put onto. So I mean, I only know what we've done at our university. We actually still have like a full interview process and everything for for casual tutors um, or lecturers. So that's um, something that's also yeah it's related because you're at the one institution, so it can help while you're studying and you're working. And sometimes um, we try to put students in the area that they're researching because you can bring your research into the classroom then and it, it's it can work really nicely if you're able to do that but also a lot of business schools have certain levels of accreditation which means that people teaching units have to have certain levels of qualifications so if you have a bachelor's degree um, or even if you have an honours degree that's one level higher as we were talking about the Australian qualifications framework so 
um, but the Australian law is actually specifies for you to teach, you have to ha hold one level, at least one level higher to teach. So if you're teaching bachelor's degree and you only have a bachelor's degree, that's not allowed. You have to have one level higher. So honours would give you that. But to be able to teach a master's program, you need to have higher than a master's. That's why you would normally need a PhD. There are some equivalence rules that can apply sometimes. But with um, accreditation, that's also so we're, we're a AACSB accredited organisation at Western Sydney University for our business school. So they also have minimum standards in terms of who can teach. So, so if it's a PhD candidate, they have to also meet those requirements. That's the long story. Yeah, <laughs> no, it took that, me a while to get there. No, that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that before. And then for the um, the students that may be doing research assistant work, first of all, what is it? Um, who are you helping? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And how do you get into it? What are the, I guess, the qualifications or prerequisites to become a research assistant? Okay, so for a research assistant, we would normally expect the student to have had some research training. Um, for me, I, I think um, all of my research assistants have worked with me on a project or one of my colleagues, not necessarily, like not, obviously I'd like my own students to work with me. But we also, it's like really hard to get the right balance because you also have your students on a timeline to finish their PhD. So we don't want to overburden them um, with so much other work that they don't stick to their timeline. So we have to ensure that that happens. But the type of work uh, that research assistants might do, it can vary. And it, once again, it depends on their level of training, but it could start from something just like a literature review. So say I might have a research question I want answered, but I need to make sure nobody else has, as we've discussed earlier, nobody else has already covered that. So I might um, have some of my own funding that I might have a grant or something for where I can then say, okay, to a research assistant, would you like to do this? Now, this is so many hours that we expect it will take for this. Um, but normally, sometimes that can happen with just the literature review. Normally, it's a little bit more complex where we might actually have some data. We might be asking our research assistants to maybe help analyse the data, put it through a software program or to clean the data, for example. That's something else. We might have our research assistants helping to do some of the administration. If we've got a survey that we're trying to administer, we might ask them to reach out and contact people to ask them if they'd participate or interviews. We might even have them conduct the interviews if they're at that level. So that's the sort of work that we would be asking them to do because, of course, um, we don't. there's only so many hours in the day that academics have. So if we want to get our research published quicker, then it can help if we have a research assistant uh, to, to help us do that. And I like to always have, if my research assistants are helping collect the data, I try to also um, have them help write some of the, write up some of the findings with me. If, if once again, if they're capable of that, and I'd like to see them be a co-author if they're putting that, um, that work in. So that can be nice for them to have that. And when we're talking about uh, entry into a PhD. If you were an honours student or a master's student and you were to be working as a research assistant and co-author publications, that can actually give you special points for um, scholarships for PhDs. So if it's a funded scholarship, it's very competitive, as you can imagine. A lot of people want those roles. So they ranked and the ranking is usually done by a, a different area of the university. So just to keep it very objective, and they have their ranking criteria. If you have done honours and performed very highly in honours and if you have journal publications, they tend to put you at the top of the list so they allocate points to you for that. So then you're more likely to be the one 
selected for the scholarship. So I think that might as well. Definitely. And you've let's say you've done your PhD, you've obviously invested years of your life into study um, and lots of money and obviously there's a lot of, of sacrifice to do that. So let's say you finish your PhD and, and there's a couple of options. So let's say you choose to stay in academia. Maybe you want to become a lecturer or a professor. Um, but if that's not what you want to do, what kind of work out there is available for someone who has done a PhD? Yeah, see, that's a tricky one because, funny enough, before I had become an academic and when I was in industry and we were recruiting people, there we would have some CVs come past and some people would have PhDs and I remember some some of my colleagues saying, oh, we definitely don't want them, (laughs) which is a bit of a worry. (laughs) Yes, Uh, but it depends on the work that they're doing, of course. And I think um, with the training that you have when you do a PhD, it, you know, it just helps you ask the right questions. I think you always can add value to any sort of team just because of the training that you've had. And just questioning when you do read other research as well, well, how, how has it been done and how was the data collected? And, you know, when people might give you um, so much, you know, 80% of people found you know, you even see it on ads on TV, found that there was some sort of result. Well, it, it helps you to identify how you would question that, like what sort of sample size was it and how did they get the sample, all of those sorts of things. Uh, I think it, it's also a role that can help with a lot of consulting that might happen. So some PhD qualified people might actually have a cons- their own consulting business or they might go and work for like one of the big four firms, for example, so, um, like, although they're classified, you know, accounting firms, they do a lot of other work that involves research. So that's something else that, um, yeah, they'll be able to assist with. But I think even someone who does a PhD in financial planning, if they go on to become a financial advisor, how fantastic would that be to, for them to actually have that qualification? They'd be able to use that PhD. And we find actually in the US, a lot of the financial advisors, when I was over there a few years ago and I met with them, I was really surprised to find such a large number of them had PhDs. So that's something that seems very normal to them there. And once again, like it is, it's a huge sacrifice and it does cost um, a lot of money, but I think they actually use that to help promote their business that they've got this extra training and they actually write journal articles and they can do the research themselves. They don't have to pay somebody else. They can actually do it. And so I think it can help there as well. And I have to say it would be really good to encourage more uh, people who are doing their bachelor degrees now to think about more study and doing PhDs because one one of the big gaps that we have now when the government decided that all financial advisors needed to have at least an undergraduate degree and obviously many of them are going back now and doing the graduate diploma that's fantastic that there's this extra education happening but who is who is there to teach them if you need to have an AQF level higher to teach it there is such a shortage. Like we all in Australia, we know all the people. We know all the academics who teach financial planning at the different universities. There's such a small number. And we do try to train up other people, like other finance or accounting um, academics. But how good would it be if you had people who were practising financial advising themselves then do a PhD and be able to come back and teach and be at the right level to be teaching as well? I think that's sort of 
to go. We need to increase the supply there. I mean, that's something sure. I always considered too, because at university, I was always really good friends with my lecturers. I really loved the culture. Um, and they'd always encourage me because, oh, you need to stay on and, and do more. But I, I really want to get that work experience, obviously get some money under my belt. Um, but now I guess it's something I'd still love to do. It's a bit of a pipe dream, maybe for the future. But um, for someone who's, you know, got some work experience in financial planning and maybe they just did a bachelor's, they didn't do honours or anything like that, what would be the pathway? Let's say if I, I started something like this at 35 um, and it's been, you know, I can't do the maths right now, but years and years and years since I've been at uni, um, obviously there's a need for people like that to go into research, but kind of what's the, the pathway? Would I need to then do a research master's ideally to get to that point? It just depends on the university. So say um, at our university, we don't have honours in our School of Business anymore, but what we do have is the Master of Research. So I can speak for, for if you were coming to our university, for example, um, you could definitely apply for the Master of Research. But even to get into the Master of Research, you do need to have you know at least a credit average in your bachelor's degree. That's still a certain standard because the work is that bit harder. So we need to know that you'll be able to handle that. Then you can always, if you've done any other courses since then, like maybe you could you could put, if there, there were other extreme circumstances, I'm sure you could put some sort of an argument together. But um, in the Master of Research, you start off doing that coursework. And what we the way that it's structured is that if you do um, the coursework and then you find that you're not going to be cut out, because you do like a little proposal unit, right? If you go through that and you present it and you find, let's just say, it's not exactly what you thought it was and you don't think you want to continue, um, you can actually exit from that Master of Research with, I think it's a Bachelor of Research you end up with. This, you, get, you actually can get an exit um, award to show that you've done so much. Uh, but it is, it is quite tough when you get to the end and you have to do that big thesis. But sometimes, um, and I know at our university, you can then get a scholarship for your thesis component. So even though you might have your coursework added to HEX, for example, if you get, I think it's a distinction or higher average in your Master of Research, I think that our university covers your thesis component so you don't have to pay those fees for that second part of your Master's. So there are a lot of rewards um, for students who do really well in because we want we want to hold on to you and we want we want to help you finish that and get into a PhD and one thing we didn't talk about was there's also something in between which is a master of philosophy so sometimes some students go into a master of philosophy and then if they do really well in that in their proposal and they make good progress we can make a recommendation that they upgrade to a PhD Wow. Wait, so a Master of Philosophy, you're not, are you necessarily studying philosophers? What does that mean? Well, PhD is a Doctor of Philosophy, so it's very similar, but not the, once again, it comes down to the contribution that's being made. The contribution isn't quite as great as it would be in a PhD. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So that's another. Yeah, so many options mm. out there. And what's, what kind of person would you say suits academia because of course it's a long commitment um it's something you're gonna be really passionate about for anyone who's listening what would you say um would be the qualities of someone who would make a great career in research wow okay i think you've got to be curious you've got to enjoy reading (laughs) yeah because there's a lot of reading (laughs) involved Uh, i think you you have You've got to have, yeah, I think coming back to curiosity, you've got to have the questions. You've got to always be asking 
different questions of what even what you're reading, even what's been written before, and being having um, a, a critical approach to things, being able to analyze like the financial uh, people who are now financial planners uh, doing that sort of analysis. I think that analysis um, when you've got a client and you've got to look at all those different areas of a, of a client's finances, for example, like you you were talking about that, like and you've got tax insurance and super, even like cash flow, all of that, being able to pull all of that together, they, those sorts of skills are actually really hard to find. And I think that's something that can really help you with research because you are drawing together a whole lot of different skills. So you need to be able to, to read and critically analyse what you're reading and you need to be able to take out the bits that are relevant you know, and with financial planning, you've got a whole lot of information about your client and you need to know which parts are really relevant to the advice that you're giving. And so I think those sorts of skills are really important. Um, depending on how you are analysing your results, like we have the qualitative results and we've got quantitative results. If you if you love the statistics, that's only going to help you because it, um that's something that's really, it can help you when you're doing your PhD if you're doing that quantitative research and you understand the basics of statistics. That gives you a really good starting point, I think. But if you don't, that's something you will learn as awesome. well. Okay, cool. And what would you say some of the, not necessarily barriers to entry, but some of the reasons people are hesitant to do further research and what advice would you give those people who are maybe wanting to do it but are, are kind of questioning it? Just do it. <laughs> That's what I would say. Don't question it. If you're, if you're thinking about it, then you probably should be doing it. Um, and once you start, like if you find the right supervisors with the support and the, a good, you, you know, look at how, how the course is structured as well. And I think having the support and the people that you feel comfortable asking questions to because, and it's like even in, in the workplace, if you don't ask the questions, you're not going to find out. It's going to take you a long time to get to the same point, whereas you could just ask somebody to make sure you stay on track. But I think also when you're talking about the skills, you do have to have good time management. It doesn't matter how busy you are. Like I was, when I look back now at all the things I had on my plate, like I was volunteering for a different roles. I was working full time. I had young kids and I was also studying. So you can do it. If it's something that you want to do, you will fit it in. Uh, but you do have to be able to organise your time quite well um, to get that done. And that's whether you're a busy person or not a busy person, you do need to organise it well because the time can get away from you when when it's up to you, when you don't have those, you know, with assessments, if you know, okay, something's due Sunday this week and if you haven't done a lot of work on it, you'll just move everything to make sure you get that assessment in on time, right? You don't have those assessment dates. You can just find the weeks just rolling on. So you have to be really disciplined. But also, um, yeah, setting yourself up well well for that. But I think some of the barriers are probably the time that's involved and the cost. That tends to be what things always come back to. But I think um, it pays off in the longer term to have those sorts. The sorts of skills that you will gain from doing any sort of research degree can help you in any type of job and it only makes you do your job better, I think. And it, it also leaves up those options. Even if somebody doesn't want to become a full-time academic, um, they're great skills to have to be able to write up your own research. And, you, you know, you're then, once you've 
done that research study, you actually have the qualifications to say you know what you're doing, Mm. you know what you're talking about. Yeah. So this has been such a great overview of the different types of study options and a bit about how they work. But for anyone who's listening to this and thinking, you know what, I think this could be for me, where can they go to find further information or guidance on taking those next steps? Most of the university websites you can find if you go to, you know, looking at courses and search research, there's usually some sort of research tab. You can reach out to if there's, there's people that, you know, you're aware of academic, most, like I said, it's a very small mm-hmm. um, number of people who specialise in financial planning in Australia as academics. So feel free to just look up that, that if you can see someone who's written about a particular topic area and that's sort of an area you're interested in, just write out to write write to them. And just say, look, this is something you're thinking about. Um, would they mind having a chat with you? Um, I've had I've talked to a number of people that aren't studying with us. That you know, at the beginning, they weren't sure exactly what they were going to do, and they just wanted to have that little chat just to sort of see if what they the idea that they had, if if we thought you know, a number of us, if we thought that it was something worth pursuing, and they've gone on to do some great things. And I've got a lot of students myself and it's all started with those those conversations and I think that it can't hurt and just give it a go absolutely and you and Michelle Dr Michelle you are so prolific in the industry you're you're doing so much stuff all the time and you've got so much valuable insight to give to students so if anyone does want to reach out to you what's the best way to do that I think I will LinkedIn always can go LinkedIn chat that's fine um or just um just send an email to me and I can yeah I can put you onto the right person if if I'm not the right person because um you know sometimes there's there are a lot of experts and I'd be happy to to sort of put you in contact with them so yeah that I'd be very happy to have a chat with anybody who might be interested very appreciative and very appreciative also of the time that you spent talking us through this today this has been so valuable and I've personally learned so much so um, thank you so much for joining and I hope that people who are listening have considered this as a career path and we hopefully see a lot more um, people going into financial planning as an area of research fantastic and you've actually given me an idea now (laughs) Going, going forward because uh, we have a lot of conferences right we have yeah. conferences for academics and as part of our conferences we often have uh, a beginning part for our doctoral students but I'm just thinking wouldn't it be great to have some, another part for potential doctoral students people who are maybe considering going to um, doing a research degree maybe there's, there's something there in that where we can get a group of people together and you could maybe talk to some current students and academics as well, just to help answer some of the questions that you've raised today. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So for anyone listening, make sure you add Dr. Michelle Cull on LinkedIn so that if that does come into fruition, you can be the first to jump onto it. But again, thank you so much, Dr. Michelle. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Azaria. Thank you for reaching out to me. I really did enjoy having this conversation and I hope it has helped. It has. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. For great resources and a free student membership, find us at fpa.com.au. Good advice makes for great futures.